Jonathan was a friend of mine, and he was a really good person, very devoted follower of Jesus Christ, but he had, he had one problem. Jonathan struggled with honesty. He always found it very easy to shade the truth, either as a way to build himself up or as a way to weasel out of admitting mistakes. And on one occasion, he was confronted about this issue, but he refused to even see that there was a problem. In essence, he ran away from his sin, and he ran away from God. And as a result, he never changed, because he refused to admit that in this area of life, he was broken. His ongoing dishonesty functioned like a spiritual limp, preventing him from being mended by God and becoming the man that God wanted him to be. Lindsay was another friend of mine, and she was a good person and faithful follower of Jesus, but but she had a problem. She struggled with lust, and she indulged that by reading pornographic literature. And she knew it was wrong, but, but she just never really saw it as a big issue. Her attitude was, who am I really hurting? And as a result, she never prayed and asked God to help her channel her sexual desires in healthy and appropriate ways. So she never changed. Because she refused to admit in that area of life she was broken. And her ongoing lust functioned like a spiritual limp, preventing her from being mended by God and becoming the woman that God wanted her to be. Now, your issues and my issues may be very different ones than those faced by Jonathan and Lindsay. And for us, it might be something like gossip or gluttony or materialism. The reality is, though, in some way, All of us are broken by sin. And because we're broken, then we face some difficult choices. Are we going to pretend that our sin doesn't really exist? Are we going to rationalize our behavior as if our actions don't harm ourselves and others? Do we settle for less than God's best and go through life with a spiritual limp? There's a better way to respond. And this morning we're going to look at that better way to respond. We're going to take a look into the life of King David of Israel at a time when he is broken. He's broken by a pattern of sin that has damaged his soul and has ruined the lives of other people. And what we're going to see is this. David chooses to be honest with God about his failures. He asks God to mend him. And David shows us how we can pray when we're broken by sin and we earnestly want and need the mercy of God. David shows us how to pray so that we can be mended by our gracious God. And thankfully, the prayer that David offers is recorded for us in the book of Psalms. It's Psalm 51. Let's see what we can learn from David. It begins with an inscription for the director of music, a psalm of David. 
when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And David prays, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Now, as we see from the inscription, David offered this prayer after committing adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. It's worse than it sounds. You see, David abuses his kingly authority to have Bathsheba brought to him for the purposes of sexual intercourse. And he takes advantage of her by doing this while her husband Uriah is away serving in the military, fulfilling his duty as a soldier. And as a result of them coming together physically, Bathsheba becomes pregnant. And David doesn't want Uriah to find out, so he arranges to have him killed in battle. David sins in multiple ways. And his first response is, cover it up. I find myself wondering, do you and I ever initially opt for cover-up instead of confession? I think it's a common human response. But it's a sign of a heart that does not fully belong to God. Now, David's cover-up fails. It fails because he's confronted by a prophet named Nathan. And this confrontation is a blessing. Sometimes we need another believer to step into our lives and engage in some tough love and confront us with our sin. And that's what Nathan does for David. And as a result of what happens, David accepts moral and spiritual responsibility for his failures. And when he comes face to face with himself, he realizes, I'm guilty. I know it. And God knows it. There's nothing at this point he can do to right the wrongs of the past except to throw himself upon the mercy of God. And so he begins this prayer by acknowledging that he's failed, and and he only can appeal to God's faithfulness, despite his own unfaithfulness. And he asks God, please grant me mercy. Now here's what's really interesting. The Hebrew word for mercy is derived from the Hebrew word for womb. Womb. Isn't that interesting? It tells us that in the Hebrew understanding, mercy is something of a feminine trait. Now, why might that be? Well, the Bible tells us that males and females are created in the image of God. It takes the nature of men and the nature of women to fully reflect the nature of God. And so when we think about God's love and we think about human love, I've heard people talk about father love and mother love. And they're two very distinct kinds of love. They're usually very different than one another. And as a general rule, father love is tough and challenging. It's the love that exhorts us to do better when we've failed. On the other hand, as a general rule, mother love is comforting and nurturing. It's the love that embraces us when we fail. And we can see this in kids. 
when children need tenderness and mercy, where do they typically turn? Most often to mom. And so I think David's appeal for mercy is, in a sense, an appeal to that mother love of God. It's an appeal to that aspect of God's love which is most tender and most nurturing. Because God's mercy is like the unfailing love of a mother. That never-ending love for the child who came from her body. And in this moment of failure, David knows that this merciful love is all that stands between him and condemnation. Such merciful love is all that stands between him and perpetual misery for what he's done. And so he says, God, give me this great mercy. And then, as we'll see in the next part of this prayer, he's going to describe what mercy looks like. Because God's mercy never is halfway. God's mercy always wipes the slate clean. And David desperately wants God to emotionally and spiritually clean him up. And so he continues to pray. Verse 2, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. You ever been at that point when your failure has been so tragic that you just can't get it out of your head? That's where David is. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out. Blot out all my iniquity. You know, sin occurs when we first betray God. And then we behave in ways that harm ourselves and others. That's why David acknowledges that at root, his sin is against God. You see, if he would have lived by faith and had a pure heart toward God, then his sinful acts against Bathsheba and Uriah never would have happened in the first place. And we see here as David prays, he is painfully honest with God. And he needs to be honest because so often our pride gets in the way of admitting our fault. And yet we'll never be free of the past if we hold something back. So David just lets it all out here because he is a broken man. In fact, he feels so low and so unworthy, he sees nothing good in himself, that that even in verse 5 he says, I was born a sinful failure. Basically, Lord, there's nothing good in me and there's never been anything good in me. Now, some Bible scholars believe David's statement in verse 5 is him teaching the doctrine of original sin, this idea that we're all guilty uh, of sin from the moment of our conception and birth. And, and, And I think that's a bit of a stretch. I don't know about you, but when I pray, I don't pray in doctrinal statements. I just tell God what's on my mind and what's on my heart. I think that's all David is doing here. 
I think he's just being very honest about how unworthy he feels. And he's also being very honest about how much he desires to be made clean. He wants to be washed and he wants to be anointed so that the stain of his sin will be removed. And as, even as we can see the pain that David feels and this sense of unworthiness that comes through, there's something profound here because he actually is also praying with hopefulness. He's hopeful because he knows that God can clean him up. He knows that God actually can blot out his sin. David's sin can be erased from the record. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded of a time back when I was in elementary school, and the staff of the school often talked about a student's permanent record. You didn't want to get anything written down in your permanent record, and they used that as a threat to inspire good behavior. And I experienced this personally on one occasion. I, I started a fight out on the playground. I got caught. I was dragged into the principal's office, and he chastised me, and he said, you know, we're going to write this down in your permanent record. It sounded very intimidating. Permanent? I didn't want the school to be collecting a bunch of permanent stuff about me, listing bad behavior. And so I resolved not to do it again. It was a threat that worked. Because permanent can be very frightening. If a record truly is permanent, it never goes away. It follows you everywhere. But here's the wonderful, amazing thing. When God grants mercy, He actually does remove our sins from His permanent record. The prophet Micah puts it this way in chapter 7, verses 18 and 19 of his book. He writes, Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives iniquity? You do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. Our God delights to show mercy. He doesn't give it out half-heartedly. He doesn't give it out grudgingly. He delights to give it. Micah goes on to say, you will again have compassion on us. You will tread all our sins underfoot, and you will hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Our God loves to extend mercy. And when He forgives us, buries our sins. They are gone. So David knows that when God cleans us up, we're completely clean. And yes, there often are real-life consequences of our sin that we still must deal with. But from God's perspective, the past is over and done with. And that is the great hope of God's mercy. That's the great joy of God's mercy. And so as David prays, he longs for and looks forward to the joy that will come back into his life when God gives him a fresh start. To me, this is a very key part of David's prayer because he doesn't just look back, he also looks forward. He wants God to erase the blot of the past and he also wants to become a different person in the future. And so as he continues to pray, he will ask God to make him new. Verse 10. 
Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then, then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You know, it would be horrible for David to be forgiven, for God to lavish his mercy on David, and then for David to fall into sin again. Yet if nothing changes then the ungodly desires of the past easily can resurface. David understands this. He needs to change. So he prays because he wants his impure heart to become a pure heart. And he knows this can happen with the help of the Holy Spirit. It is the presence of the Spirit who helps us change. We don't do it through willpower alone. In the New Testament, we learn that the Holy Spirit brings all kinds of good things into our lives. But one of the most profound and important, particularly in David's case, is that the Holy Spirit brings the quality of self-control into our lives. Think about the difference self-control would make for David. Self-control would have prevented him from stealing the body of Bathsheba and stealing the life of of Uriah, her husband. Self-control would have made a huge difference in his past. Self-control can help David make better choices, more godly choices in the future. And that will happen if he is led by the Holy Spirit rather than by his human desires and passions. The Holy Spirit can transform David and make him new. David is confident that that can happen. And when it does, David will have a a powerful story to tell. You see, when we've been broken by sin and mercifully mended by God, one of the most selfish things we can do is to keep silent about it. God wants us to be willing to tell others of our experiences as a way to help them be mended from their failures. And so when David says here that he will sing of God's righteousness and declare God's praise and teach other sinners about the ways of God, oh, he means it. And he does this in a huge way. He doesn't just tell this story to a couple of close friends. Hey, hey, let me tell you what happened. He writes his prayer down for everybody to see it. Even more. As we saw at the beginning in the inscription, he takes this written prayer and he gives it to the director of music, the choir master in the Jewish temple. And why does he do that? Because he wants his prayer of brokenness and mending to become a song of confession and restoration for the entire community of faith. David doesn't hide a thing. And he wants others to be mended and made new by God, just as he is being mended and made new by God. And that requires him to be vulnerable about what he's been through. 
but it's a story worth telling. Passages like this in the Bible are what encourage me to sometimes stand here and tell you about my own times of weakness and failure and struggle. Times when God has met me in moments of despair and helped mend me and get me back on track. And quite frankly, I'd rather not tell you any of that. I'd rather just pretend that I am a flawless model of godly perfection. But we all know that would be a lie. Which means there's value in sharing some of my own stories of brokenness and mending with you. And here's what keeps me doing it. Every single time I tell a story like that, somebody says, you just spoke into my life. What you just said, that's part of my story. And particularly if I share about being broken and then mended, sometimes someone will come up and say, I'm not yet mended. I'm broken. But when I hear what God did in your life and how he restored you and made you whole, it gives me hope that God will do that for me. And for the same reason, we've had church members stand here on this platform and share their own stories of of brokenness and mending. And some of them have been painful and profound. We've had people talk about how God has mended them from the damage caused by their own pride from the damage caused by their anger, even from the damage caused by their adultery. Those kinds of stories are not easy to tell, but they're powerful. There's profound encouragement that comes from sharing our stories with each other. And we can do it here in worship, and we can do it in our small groups, and we can do it in one-on-one conversations. But if you have a story of brokenness and mending to tell, a story of how God has stepped into your life and made you whole, please don't keep it to yourself. Find a way to share it with other members of God's family so they can be encouraged. That's what David does. I hope we always will continue to follow his example. Now, David's covered a lot of ground in his prayer, but before he wraps up, he's got one final thing to pray about. He wants God to know that he understands how repentance and forgiveness actually take place. Verse 16, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteousness, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. David's a faithful Jew, and he knows that part of the way God deals with the Jews is that when you you engage in sin, you need to go to the temple and perform a sacrifice. You need to give that sacrificial offering as part of the process of being restored to God. And yet David knows that the outward act of a sin offering by itself means nothing. What matters is a change of heart. 
the way back to moral and emotional and spiritual wholeness never begins with a religious ritual, but with a sense of our own brokenness. David's broken heart and David's broken spirit are the true sign of his repentance. David earnestly wants God to see the sincerity of his plea because this and this alone becomes the avenue of healing and restoration. David's brokenness becomes fertile ground where God can do his miraculous work of growing new life out of David's tragic failure. Because that's what a merciful and loving God does. And then in the final two verses, David once again looks beyond himself. He's thinking of the people for whom he's responsible as king. And he doesn't want his sin to reflect on the city, so he asks God to bring all the people to a point where they are a healthy, worshiping community. A community of people who understand that sacrifices and offerings do not make you whole. Sacrifices and offerings do not mend you. The sacrifices offered in worship simply are an expression. An expression of a spirit that has been broken from sin, has confessed through heartfelt repentance, and has been mended by the unfailing love of a merciful God. A God who delights to show mercy. As I read these words from David, these heartfelt words, I find myself wondering if we actually take our sin as seriously as he does. I find myself wondering if we find it easy at times to just confess lightheartedly to wrongdoing and take God's forgiveness and mercy for granted. I find myself wondering if we just sort of expect God to take care of that and then we don't pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us change in the future. And I wonder if sometimes we even make peace with certain sins. Instead of confessing them to God, we just tolerate them as part of our life. We accept them and we put up with them. If we do that, then unlike David, we're not, we're not really understanding the cost. The cost to ourselves, the cost to others of living with continual ungodly attitudes and actions. I wonder about these things. So I think we need to zero in on verses 16 and 17. I really think they're the heart of this prayer. And I think we need to consider what it might look like to be broken and mended by God. Let's take another look at those two verses. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Back in week one of this series, we took a look at this picture of the vase, this vase that's been cracked and broken and mended countless times. It is seamed with cracks, and it's even missing some pieces. But here's what I love. Even though it's been cracked and mended, it still has a unique beauty all its own. Even though it's been cracked and mended, it still is useful. It's functional. It's been cracked and mended, but it still has value. 
And why is that? Well, it's because right in the center is a heart, a heart that spans across the brokenness. It's a heart that represents the heart of God. The potter who made this vase, Carol Wallaber, sees this as a powerful visual representation of our lives. It is God's unfailing love that covers and mends our brokenness. And yes, we may be cracked. We may be missing some pieces. But God is always ready to mend us and put the pieces back together. He's always ready to give us a fresh start. In order to be mended, though, we have to follow the example of David and admit our brokenness. That's where it starts. That's when we make ourselves available for God to mend us. He can't mend us if we refuse to admit that we're broken. So there are two things, I think, that this prayer of David challenges us to do. The first is this, if you've been broken and mended by God, then please share that story at appropriate times and in appropriate ways with other believers. Allow them to be encouraged by the way you have experienced the mercy of God in your life. And if you're broken and in need of mending, then don't settle for going through life with a spiritual limp. Don't run from God. Pray as David did and ask God to blot out your sin. Let God give you a new heart, a pure heart, renewed joy, and a fresh start in life. It may be that you need to speak to someone about this. It may be that you need to have someone pray with you about this. If so, when we wrap up our service in a moment, I want to invite you to make your way over to the prayer corner. We will have an elder or two there. And they'd love to help you. They would love to help you embrace the mercy that's offered by our compassionate and loving God. Don't settle for less than God's best. If you are broken, let Him mend you. Because our God delights to show mercy 